Welcome back to the Art and Science of Sound Healing. I'm your host, Thomas Orr Anderson, recording from my Cozy Mountain studio here in Sewanee, Tennessee, surrounded by thick, rich forests and beautiful waterfalls. Today we have the most exciting of guests. In fact, I have to say of all people that I could think of in the world right now that I would like to have on the show. This is uh, my favorite choice. Today our guest is Brenda Dunn. I'll uh, read her bio. I have a lot more to say about her, but um, just to narrow it down, Brenda is the president and treasurer of the International Consciousness Research Laboratories, or ICRL, She was also the laboratory manager of the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Laboratory, also known as the Pear Lab, from its inception in 1979 until its closing in 2007. With Robert John, she is the co-author of three major textbooks on consciousness-related anomalies. Although she holds a master's degree in developmental psychology from the University of Chicago, her deeper interests are in the humanities, the history and the philosophy of religion, and cross-disciplinary approaches to the study of consciousness that incorporate metaphysical as well as scientific traditions. She also serves as the education officer of the Society for Scientific Exploration And I'm very grateful to say that she is a longtime friend, advisor, and uh, I think of her as essentially my fairy godmother. I uh, am grateful to have you here, Brenda. Thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you so much for a lovely introduction, Thomas. (laughs) I'm delighted to to be here and to to, uh, to chat with you uh, about sound healing. Yay. So I guess as a, just a way to get us warmed up, if you could tell us a little bit of a, about your background. Um, I know it's a pretty uh, massive one, but particularly in terms of your work in the pair lab and your experiences with um, working kind of at this interesting boundary where um, rigorous science meets the more mystical and um, uh, more slippery world of consciousness and how you've, you know, you've interacted with a lot of the most interesting characters in the history of this sort of field. Um, anything that you could tell about just your background and, and where you're coming from? Well, I'm delighted to do so, uh, but I do need to clarify at the outset that I have absolutely no experience or knowledge uh, in the field of sound healing, uh, other than what I have read by other people, including you, Thomas. Uh, But I do find it a very interesting topic, and I think some of the work that we've done at the pair lab uh, might have some implications uh, for the work that you're doing. 
Um, as you pointed out, my my professional or academic background is really in developmental psychology, but uh, I really have had a long-standing, indeed, a lifelong interest in trying to understand the nature of consciousness and how it interacts with the physical world or the physical environment in which we find ourselves. And by physical environment, I include our physical bodies. So um, let me see where where to start from that. Uh, in the uh, work at PEAR, we really came up with, well, we came up with a number of important findings, but the one that may be most relevant is the fact that our our reality consists of really two dimensions. Um, well, actually, I, I could say four dimensions, but one of them is the set, the, the complementarity of the subjective and objective domains, and the other is the complementarity of the analytical and the intuitive domains. And... Um, these really balance each other. One without the other is incomplete. They are not different. Uh, use the word complementary in the sense that Niels Bohr uh, posed the term. Namely, they are two different ways of looking at the same thing. And the way one chooses to look at something frequently determines what we see. In the uh, 28 years that we uh, operated the PEAR laboratory, our major um, topics uh, were the interaction of human consciousness with random physical devices and systems, and also the ability of consciousness to acquire information about uh, locations, mostly locations, that are remote in distance and time. Um, the, uh, the human machine experiments basically uh, demonstrated that people could affect the output of these random processes in very modest but statistically significant ways that appeared to be basically a, uh, a change, a small change in the probability of a given output or outcome. Uh, for example, if one flipped a coin a hundred times, one would expect to get approximately 50 heads and 50 tails, but you might not always get exactly 50. You might get 52, you might get 46, but over many, many repetitions, it will come out uh, theoretically to about half the time for each. But what our experiments showed was that uh, these probabilities could be ever so slightly shifted uh, so that maybe you'd get 51 heads out of 100, which you wouldn't be terribly impressed with. But if you got 5,100 heads out of 10,000 coin flips, uh, that would be un very unlikely. It would indicate that there was a slight bias towards one, uh, either heads or tails, um, and this would be shown, and this was shown to be correlated with the human operator's pre-stated intention to get either more heads or more tails, more high numbers, more low numbers, more events 
that go to the right, more events that go to the left, uh, depending on the experiment. And so the experiments all involve many hundreds of thousands of such random events. And the results, uh, though small, were significant and statistically quite robust. We were also able to show that people could acquire more information uh, than they would get by just guessing uh, in attempting to describe some remote location. And again, over many hundreds of such trials, over the course of many different analytical techniques, uh, that the, they were able to acquire far more information than would be expected by chance. The thing that is interesting here is that in all of these cases, uh, when we would speak to the participants, they almost all uh, commented that it, although our primary variable in these experiments was intention, uh, there was more going on than just having an intention. One needed to establish a resonance, mm. uh, that is, a feeling of connection of emotional connection, of experiential connection with the device or process they were involved with. Um, so there were really these two components that seemed to be important. Intentionality, which would be an intellectual or a mental um, uh, effort, and resonance, which is more of an emotional or subjective uh, experience. These, again, form a complementary pair where they are two different dimensions of the same thing, but they need to be in balance uh, for these effects to take place. Now, when we speak of resonance, um, uh, resonance is a strange sort of word that, again, has many different interpretations depending on the context in which it's being used. Mm -hmm. Now, in physics, there is a, a very definite description of resonance, which has to do with two, um, two sounds or two measurements that are uh, essentially, if you will, on the same wavelength. For example, when you have a, two, a, a pro two processes that are operating at the same physical frequency, they will tend to amplify uh, and become stronger um, than, than you would expect just looking at the individual um, frequencies of the device uh, or system. Um, uh, resonance, those also uh, used sometimes to describe a, an emotional feeling, a sense of connection. Um, in fact, we would metaphorically, we speak of being on the same wavelength uh, with another person or in a situation. So that, again, you have an objective, an analytical definition of resonance, but you also have a subjective uh, sense of feeling that, that's involved with this. And I believe um, when we speak of sound, Certainly, we're speaking of resonances, and we're speaking of frequencies and amplitudes and terms that are used in very specific scientific ways, uh, very objective, measurable ways. But we're also speaking about this more subjective sense of uh, connection or relationship. Yeah, what you brought up there, you talked about the 
when the results, when people were obtaining positive results in that they were having a statistically significant effect on the random event generators that they reported not not only were was it correlating with their intention but also that they reported some sense of resonance and connection with it that's very very connected to what people report in sound healing a lot of people claim that intention is really really the most fundamental part of effective sound healing practices and there's there's other people who actually claim that the intention is not so relevant it's more a matter of the the recipients uh, which is interesting because when in your research the recipient being the random event generator is presumably not a a being in the normal sense it's not another human at least and in sound healing the recipient is actually another being who has the same types of you know intentions and and internal experiences and whatnot but there's also another part of sound healing that is is notably important by by a lot of uh, people that practice it they talk about is the importance of establishing some sort of connection with the recipient or the client or whoever is receiving the treatment having some sort of uh, very uh, conscious connection to them whether it's emotional or one one practice that I think is really good for people that can't exactly don't have a clear sense for for how to connect in that way is to breathe with the person so it's a really common practice among uh, not just sound healing practitioners but also massage therapists to watch the breath of the recipient and then breathe along with them which interestingly um, as revealed by the research with heart math your breath pattern largely determines your heart rate variability pattern and then your heart emits an electromagnetic field that extends tremendously outside of the body and heart cells are very responsive to input external input such that the a heart cell that's in the field of another heart cell the pacemaker cells will tend to synchronize with with each other and so it's pretty interesting that I think sound healing has a lot to do with your research but also sound healing has this sort of added complexity of that on one side of the on the recipient is also a human being so it definitely adds a lot more uh, things layers to consider but it seems like it has a whole lot of commonalities yeah one example i could give thomas uh, in which um, this process might be demonstrated that's more up your alley, would be music. Um, when a musician develops a resonance with his or her instrument, something special happens uh, to the music that's being produced. When somebody is just playing the notes 
as they're reading them on the paper without that emotional connection, the music is nowhere near as as beautiful. And one one can clearly tell this when one listens to uh, a truly superb musician who is one with his or her instrument as opposed to somebody who's just learning it. One needs to both know the notes. All right, there's your analysis again. But one also needs to feel the music. And there's that subject, subjective or emotional connection. And in a sense, that relationship that a musician has with his or her instrument uh, is not that different from the connection that a healer might have with his or her uh, client. Basically, you have to have an intention. Uh, that is what focuses your awareness or, or the direction of your your process uh, on a specific goal. Uh, but then one has to kind of let go of that and s- step back and become one with with the patient or client. This is a um, uh, you know there's an, a great example of this again in in physics. One can speak of covalent bonds. Okay, what's a covalent bond? Well, uh, if you take two atoms, let's say we're talking about hydrogen, which has uh, each hydrogen atom has one electron. Okay. But when these two atoms are close together and they come into resonance, they begin to share their electrons. What happens is you can no longer distinguish which electron belongs to which uh, nucleus, which which atom. Um, Basically, you now have a molecule that has two electrons, okay? And what's fascinating about this is that the combined um, energy, if you will, of the molecule is greater than that of the two distinct atoms. Somehow or other, it is as if by giving up information about which electron belongs to which atom, uh, you now have a a unit uh, that is a molecule that is stronger than the sum of its parts. Um, this is a, a puzzle in uh, even in physics. Uh, they refer to this as an exchange force. That is some anomalous component of energy that one acquires in the process of giving up the intellectual distinction of which electron goes with which atom. It's very much like uh, when when people fall in love. Uh, the us or the we is greater than the sum of the you and I, okay? Somehow when we are functioning as a pair, as a couple, that is uh, resonant, okay, the experience becomes more than the experience that each individual might have by themselves. So, you know, we we see this kind of process going on on a lot of levels, both in the physical world and in the emotional world, the subjective world, there is something about this resonance when two people or two situations or two systems are on the same wavelength, when they are on the same frequency, uh, those frequencies combine and produce a stronger uh, amplitude than you would get if you were just looking at the separate systems. Does that make sense? 
it, it, yeah, it's like a, a atomic level synergy. Yeah. You had uh, some really interesting results when you had people come in and uh, do your experiments at the pair lab in couples. Could you could you tell a little bit about that? Because I think that definitely connects with what you're just now saying. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that's uh, actually, I find, one of the most fascinating aspects of our findings. Um, most of the experiments we did involved, in, let's say we'll talk about the random event generator, although this was true of other experiments that we did as well. But uh, typically, there would be one person that would come in that would have a stated, pre-recorded intention, let's say, to get higher numbers or to get lower numbers, okay? And they would do repeated experiments over time and show some kind of a characteristic effect that was uh, almost like a signature for that person. Um, we did find that uh, men and women operators, combine, you know, overall, uh, tended to show uh, fairly different styles of effect. Uh, the male operators tended to get the results in the directions of their intention more often, uh, whereas the, those, but those effects tended to be rather small. The female operators, on average, would get larger effects, but they didn't necessarily correlate with what they intended to do but they were still nonetheless beyond what you'd expect by chance. Now, if you bring two operators in and ask them to work together on the task, um, the results were, were rather surprising. It turned out that if the operators were of different sex, um, well, let me go back. If the operators were the same sex, they were both males or both females, the results tended to be uh, fairly null, very close to what you'd expect by chance. But if they were of opposite sex, uh, the effects were uh, over twice as large as what they produced individually. And it turned out that if the uh, couple, if the male-female pair happened to be a, have a resonant relationship, that is, they were in love or had a, a strong bond between them, the results that they produced tended to be uh, about seven times larger than what they would get by chance. Uh, and they seemed to, the, those results tended to incorporate both the, um, the, the uh, directionality of the male operators and the stronger amplitude of the females. Uh, so somehow or other, that tendency uh, would combine, the resonance would produce some kind of a new result uh, that was stronger than the individual results were. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, that's, uh, that's something that could be thought about for many years. <laughs> and has been. <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's, it's beautiful too. It, it's inspiring. It's not just an interesting result, but it actually is something, you know, we can take with us into our daily life and potentially put to use. I find that. Oh, yeah. That's beautiful. Well, it's something as simple as, you know, if you walk down the street and you pass someone and smile at them uh, and they smile back, something happens. 
you both walk away feeling good. <laughs> you know, um, it, it, this goes on in, in everything we do. Um, I think it also applies even to our interaction with non-human systems. Um, if you treat your, your tools, your computer, your car, your musical instrument, as if it had a consciousness, as if it could respond, you treat it with care, you treat it with respect, you treat it with love, it works better. Um, I don't know how that works exactly, but uh, I certainly have noticed that in my own life. Um, when I get annoyed at a machine, it does tend to break more often. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh, true. And I, I think I'm not alone in that. I think, you know, uh, that sense of resonance, that sense of love, of connectedness, seems to amplify almost every uh, activity and every experience that we have. I, I like that you brought up about the uh, resonance of a great musician with their instrument. The, our, our last guest, um, a, a renowned musician named Future Man, he actually brought up the same thing. He, he brought up B.B. King and how B.B. King named his guitar Lucille, I believe. And B.B. King's a sort of an archetypal example of someone where you can, people feel his music. He has a lot of, <clears throat> that emotional content that makes people feel and then other people can copy his playing and play the same notes and the same patterns and it doesn't make people feel the, the same thing and uh, it's it's really interesting. Yeah, you see that with classical musicians also. Um, Vladimir Horowitz uh, or, or Yasha Heifetz, you know, when they're playing a piece of music there's something special in what comes across in that music than when uh, a less talented or a less um, resonant <laughs> musician and instrument are working together. Uh, you can you can hear it, you feel it, and and I mean that in a very physical way. You feel it, you feel it in your body. Um, something you feel, you know, it, you're it. You feel expansive. You feel warm uh, when when you're experiencing that kind of resonant performance. Um, so I, I think that may be a hint of what goes on in uh, successful sound healing. It doesn't matter, you know, what the instrument is. It's a question of how the performer is playing it. It's a really fascinating topic because in the modern popularized sound healing world, what, what, it, what a lot of people teach in workshops and write in their books is really independent of the, the human. So people are claiming that, and I think that they're claiming this in order to help sort of in an attempt to legitimize or to feel like sound healing is scientifically legitimate. To me, it's, it's almost an indication of some sort of, you know, fundamental insecurity, the, the desire to prove it through something that sounds scientific. But people will claim that sound healing is all based on specific frequencies such that you could create some little machine that plays just the right frequencies and then you'll be healed. But in 
in my experience and in the experience of uh, the most the most knowledgeable sound healers that I've with whom I've come in contact, it doesn't really fit that model at all. Well, it does depend on how that sound is being generated. If it's being generated with love, with feeling, um, then it's going to be different than just an objective frequency or sound out there somewhere. Uh, it's, it's how that sound is produced that makes it effective or not effective. Uh, there, there is a tendency, as you point out, uh, for people to sometimes invoke um, physical terms like frequency or vibration or energy without really understanding what is meant by that those terms in physics. Um, there is, of course, a metaphorical connection. We The terms have a subjective component. When you talk about feeling resonant with another person, um, you, you can't explain that in terms of the particular frequency that you're on, you know, in, in technical quantitative terms, but you can describe it in emotional terms. We know what it is when we're on the same wavelength. Uh, it doesn't really make much difference what the wavelength is. It's something that we're sharing. And we have to be careful that when we use terms like that, we are we specify that we're using it in that subjective sense rather than in the quantitative uh, physical sense. Can you've you've brought up a number of times the terms subjective and objective, and I know that a, a lot of your thoughts and communications over the course of your you know decades of work in this these interesting fields uh, had a lot to do with explorations of the kind of the relationship and the complementary nature of what we call subjective and objective. Could you speak a little uh, more about that in particular and uh, how that's come up in your work and your studies? Yes. Um, when we objectify something, we are describing an experience, okay? The description of an experience is not the same as the experience itself. The description of an experience is objective. The experience is a subjective ex uh, thing. It's something you feel. It's something you experience directly. Uh, the, 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 there is, you know, both of these, uh, once again, they're, they're complementary. They are two ways to talk about an experience. One is the actual having the experience where you are immersed in some environment or sensation or sound, if you will, um, to the extent that you are feeling it as if it is a part of yourself. Then there is the objective dimension where you're describing what it is you felt. Um, but, you know, as the old expression goes, the map is not the territory. Um, our descriptions are valuable when we want to communicate, you know, what we experienced to somebody else. But we are not sharing that experience with the other person by describing it. And when we are sharing the experience with another person, 
then it is a totally different experience and it's something that is subjective that you both are uh, feeling uh, the, the same way. Um, you know, that's one way to describe it. Again, something that's out there that you can measure, that you can quantify, that you can describe as opposed to something that you just feel within yourself and it is not separate from from you. Mm. Um I think that <laughs> attempts to describe the distinction. That brings up to me a question. I don't know if it's easy to answer or not, but in the course of your work in the pair lab, you had contact and very close contact and interaction with a really broad variety of people. Um, really, really strict, rigorous, by-the-book, you know, scientists and also really far-out artists and and every, and then magic people and everywhere in between. Can you say anything about what it's like to work with this broad variety of people that all speak different languages and, uh, you know, some people, you know, only speak math and statistics and then some people only speak, you know, in, you know, far out feelings, know, feelings. <laughs> and, and you really were just in the middle of this really thick field of all of these people interacting and you were kind of a central figure kind of trying to coordinate people in this strange world of multiple languages and multiple approaches. <laughs> Well, it, it comes down to what uh, what your choice of language is and trying to get a feeling of where the other person is, is coming from. If you're speaking to a scientist, uh, you might choose to speak in certain terms uh, and probably more objectively because scientists tend to think objectively about things. Uh, when you speak with artists, uh, you speak more subjectively because art is a creative process, as is science, of course. But um, and science, of course, is also an art. But there, there tends to be a little bit more of a balance to one side or the other, depending on your point of view. Um, I think it really comes down once again to this attempt to establish a resonance, a, a sense of the other person and a sense of how best to communicate what you're trying to to share uh, with somebody from their, their point of view. Um, I think that, um, again, there's, a, um, I wouldn't say a distinction, but there might be a shift from an emphasis on the descriptive as opposed to an emphasis on the experiential. Um, I can't describe it better than that because it's a, if you will, an intuitive sense uh, that that one gets when one attempts to uh, to, to, to tune into uh, again an interesting uh, uh, term uh, to the other person. And um, if somebody is very skeptical and very resistant, it doesn't matter how much statistics you throw at them or how many graphs you show them, uh, they're going to be uh, resistant to that because it's inconsistent with their belief system. Uh, but when you are 
speaking to somebody about an experience and you indicate that you, you have had such an experience, you understand what that experience is like, uh, you can communicate more effectively. That makes sense. Um, you, as far as I, I'm concerned, are a, a sort of grand master of that art of switching your language to best match the person you're speaking with. I definitely admire your ability to do that so elegantly. Well, some people would describe it as being schizophrenic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but it's a really, it, it's a question of being there, wherever you are, and paying attention to the person or, you know, that you're, you're, you're communicating with and trying to sense where they're coming from. It's very similar to, you know, what the folks at HeartMath have demonstrated. Um, you, you, you resonate, okay? Your hearts, your heads, your thoughts, your experiences are sort of, once again, on the same wavelength. Uh, and then the communication flows much, much e- more easily. If you don't mind, I'd like to switch gears a little and talk, if if you would, a little bit about Bob. Uh, Robert John was the founder of the Pear Lab who just passed away a few weeks ago, and he was the person with whom you worked directly as a sort of co-leader of the, the lab for so many years. And obviously he's not with us now to, to, to speak, but would you be willing to say a little bit about him and, and what it was like, your sort of interaction as you two were sort of complementary yourselves with each other, he being a very strict, rigorous sort of scientific fellow and you're being more artistic, at least relatively with him. Could you say a little bit about him just in his honor? Well, have you got about three hours? <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I could go on at, at great length, but in brief, the relationship that Bob and I had was very complimentary in every sense of the word. We were very resonant. Uh, we each brought a different dimension uh, of, of our experience and understanding to our interactions, but they blended. They tended to balance each other and produce uh, deeper insights when when we could recognize uh, and respect the other's point of view as just as legitimate as our own. <clears throat> we uh, sometimes spoke of uh, each other as Bob being the particle and my being the wave, okay? Uh, Bob tended to be very precise. He was somebody who had a very accurate sense of direction and a sense of time, and he would be very specific in his descriptions. He would frequently say to me, uh, as I would ramble on, as I'm doing today, uh, would you get to the point? (laughs) And I would say to him, what do you mean the point? There is no point. (laughs) Uh, Because as a wave, I was more into frequencies and amplitudes than I was into position and momentum. Um, But we both recognized that these were very important and necessary components of any experience. 
And we found that uh, we almost always uh, came to the same conclusions coming at it from our own unique perspectives because they were so complementary. Bob was a uh, an extraordinary... Uh, well, <laughs> for example, Bob only spoke in complete grammatically correct sentences. Uh, I'm sure from listening to me, you will notice that I do, I do not. Um, but he was uh, also a very deep thinker. He was a very wise man, and he had a profound spiritual sense, even though he didn't talk about it very much with, with too many people. Uh, and I guess on the other side, although I tended to be more in tune with the metaphysical and the subjective domain, um, I also uh, was capable of becoming more precise and more more accurate in, in my descriptions. So, you know, we learned from each other. Um, Bob's background as a uh, an academic and a scientist, um, he was a, uh, a well a, a rocket scientist. He had done in many he had spent many years in developing uh, advanced aerospace propulsion systems. He had uh, worked his way up the academic ladder to become the dean of the School of Engineering and Applied Science at Princeton University. And he was highly respected by his peers uh, in, in those domains. Um, many of them, however, had difficulty understanding why he would want to involve himself in such a strange uh, field as uh, you know, anomalous phenomena. Uh, what does consciousness have to do with engineering? And um, but he was also very dedicated to what he believed was right and uh, very courageous in, in that he did not back down when someone disagreed with him or criticized him. He was always courteous and, um, and polite, but um, he, he knew what he knew. You know, there's a quote attributed to Carl Jung when somebody asked him once whether he believed in God. <laughs> And Jung is reported to have said, I don't have to believe, I know. Mm. And uh, that was kind of Bob's attitude toward what what he knew and what he knew to be right and his commitment to the freedom of inquiry, which is at the core of academia and of the scientific process. So he was uh, an exemplary, exemplary scientist but he was also a very profound thinker, and the, the combination of the two made him a truly unique individual. Uh, I could go on, yeah. as I say, for, for hours talking about him. Well, there's definitely but, uh, a book about it, about you, you and Bob's, uh, your interactions. What's the title of that book? Uh, yes, we, in addition to the three books that we wrote, uh, or even the two other books that we edited that dealt with, um, with, with scientific research and, you know, academia and so forth, um, we, we wrote another book together. A number of people had pointed out to us that one could not hope 
to understand the nature of the pear lab than the magic that it embodied without understanding the relationship that Bob and I shared. Um, and so uh, about two years ago, we wrote a book that we called Molecular Memories. And it's uh, unlike the other books, uh, it's not technical. There are no graphs, there's no equations, there's no tables. It's just a collection of vignettes, um, anecdotes describing some of the experiences we shared and how our different points of view would uh, come together uh, to create a, a broader uh, understanding of whatever it might be. I could give you one example of that that I was thinking of uh, not long ago. Uh, Bob was a lifetime devoted uh, fan of baseball. Uh, when we met, I had no interest at all in baseball. Uh, but uh, clearly, if one wanted to understand Bob, one had to make some effort to understand baseball. So uh, he would very patiently explain the game to me, the rules, the, the way it was played, the, the, the different... Uh, aspects of the game and I would listen to him and then there was one wonderful day when I said to him you know I said that game has some very interesting archetypal dimensions you've got the four directions in terms of the four bases you've got the uh, the squaring of the circle uh, you've got the uh, the mound in the center from which the energy that generates the action uh, is, is emitted. Uh, it, it's really quite mystical in its own way. <laughs> and uh, Bob looked at me rather oddly at first and said, that's very interesting, uh, it makes, <laughs> but it makes sense. And what was very curious about that was the, that year um, I started watching baseball with him, and Bob was a very devoted uh, Phillies fan, and that was the year that the Phillies won the World Series. It <laughs> um, was um, I was fascinated by the game because I was observing the oh, almost what I, I might call choreography, the dynamic among the players and how they worked together and seemed to be tuned into each other uh, as a unit. And um, at one point after the uh, World Series, some interviewer asked one of the players, you know, wh what what happened that brought this team that was sort of down at the bottom of the, the pile into such outstanding performance? And they said, um, I don't know, but it's almost as if some magic entered into the clubhouse. <laughs> <laughs> Now I'm not I'm not saying that we were responsible personally for them winning the World Series, but I'm not going to deny that it might have had some effect. <laughs> but but this was an example of how our two different perspectives could come together and and expand the understanding of both of us. Wow. That, I I love that book. I've read it a couple times now and I'll I'm sure I'll read it again. The stories are not just interesting, but they're illuminating in, in subtle ways that aren't necessarily easy to uh, say exactly how, but just like that story you just told, it definitely shares some sort of wisdom that is not necessarily 
easy to communicate other than just through the story itself, like mythology. Um, to change gears yet again, if you're willing, I'd like to talk a little bit about your another field of research that you all uh, participated in, uh, the field called archaeoacoustics, the study of the acoustics of ancient structures. That's uh, largely how I ended up connecting so much with you by getting involved in the archaeoacoustics aspect of your lab. Could you tell a little bit about uh, the studies you did and, and such? Sure. Um, it started really uh, during a trip that we took to the uh, this American Southwest with our friends Paul and Charlotte Devereaux. And in the course of that trip, we had stopped to visit a reconstructed uh, kiva, an ancient site, a ceremonial site, um, that um, we uh, we went in and, you know, we were walking around and talking and Bob commented uh, or asked uh, Paul, he said, you know, this place has some very interesting acoustical properties. Has anybody ever studied that? And Paul said, not to my knowledge, but if you want uh, if ancient sites with acoustical properties, you ought to see some of the ancient sites in Great Britain. And so we uh, got together and uh, took a trip to uh, Great Britain, where we uh, visited some of the ancient sites in uh, Wales and uh, uh, Ireland, not Scotland, excuse me. I think we went to about seven different sites. Some of these, uh, you know, were very, very ancient, um, 4,000 years old or, or older. And um, we brought a sound generator, which we would uh, turn on and then tune to the point where it had established you could sense or hear the resonance uh, in in the these cavities. You know, this is sort of like this. That's like the, what you get when you when you sing in the shower. You know, that there's a reverberation, a uh, a an amplification of the sound in ways that, that are very pleasant usually if if you can sing on key that is yeah. uh, but we discovered much to our surprise that almost all of these sites had a resonant frequency that was very close to uh 110 hertz and um it was it, it was more than you know pure coincidence and indeed, there was even one or two sites that had stones of a different material in there. Nobody ever knew quite what those stones were, but when you graphed uh, the, the uh, sound resonance, it actually turned out to be like a baffle in a musical instrument that adjusted mm. the tone. We also noted that many of these sites had uh, rock art that appeared to demonstrate these uh, sound resonances, the the nodes and anti-nodes of that particular frequency. Um, Well, it's not quite clear what these sites were used for. We have no way of knowing. But it obviously had some purpose if they went to all that trouble to construct these sites so that they would be tuned to that particular 
that particular frequency. One one of our colleagues, uh, Ian Cook, did a small study uh, exposing people to different sound frequencies. And it turned out that at about 110 hertz, their brain activities moved, shifted into the same um, the same modality that it would be in while they might be in a meditative state. Um, we, we never went any further with that, but it uh, it was some indicated that there was some purpose to this, and that these sounds um, that the sounds that were produced within these these uh, environments were also which the environments which were also aligned with different astronomical uh activity you know the, the sunrise at the winter solstice etc that these these ancient people somehow had a science that incorporated sound and astronomy and construction and whatever else uh but they had a profound knowledge of uh of of sound in ways that I think we we lost. You found it in some of the ancient cathedrals or some of the other. Uh, it's been noted in other ancient sites, the pyramids, uh, some of the Mayan temples, um, which uh, uh, also indicate, if not the, the same particular frequency, but that also indicated these resonances that appeared to be intentional. And um, anyway, this was, I think, one of the earliest uh, explorations of this uh, this concept. And as a result, a number of people became interested in it. And there was established a whole new field of study called archaeoacoustics. And um, a number of people have gone to up many different sites uh, to explore the, these uh, qualities um, or characteristics. I believe they, there's even a professional society that has a journal or annual meetings and so forth. So um, anyway, that, that was a fun experience, and it was telling us something, uh, well, it was telling us about something we didn't know, and we still don't quite know, but it opened up a dimension of uh, consideration that not too many people had thought about before. I have uh, studied... There's a the most classic text on architecture written by Vitruvius who describes uh, kind of it's like sort of instructions on how to build ancient Greek temples. And I, I can't remember when the book was written, but it's 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 very old and uh, and he describes building temples in the, proportions that are harmonic so for example if you look at um in here in nashville close by to where i am they have a reconstruction of the parthenon and the parthenon is built in ratios that are some of them are some golden ratios but then some of them are harmonic proportions and if if you build a a building in harmonic proportions then the fundamental resonant frequencies uh, given by the length, width, and height of the room would be in harmony with each other. 
even though these buildings are so big that it would be subsonic, you wouldn't be able to hear it, but there would still yet be resonating within the room really, really low, way below our hearing, but but uh, also at a frequency range that our body responds to, there would be a chord, a beautiful harmonious chord. And in our, mm-hmm. in our modern buildings, we build our rooms in just random proportions, whatever's convenient, or we don't even consider acoustics at all in the design of our buildings. And it, there's some reasons to believe that that might have some negative effects on our, our bodies and our, our biology, mm. on our wellness. I'm definitely interested in exploring that uh, further. Uh, particularly, there's been some people that have studied people's houses that are near airports or near blasting zones or near interstates and showing that there's really, really strong resonance in their houses coming from the noise source from the for the blasting or mm-hmm. interstate but the resonances are subsonic so that you can't hear it but you need specialized equipment to measure it but our bodies are really well known to respond tremendously to those frequency ranges those really low frequencies yeah. that you can't hear and if and at the other end of the spectrum there's evidence that indicates that if you have a building or a home near a uh, a power station or a, a transformer. Mm. You can get electromagnetic fields that can be disturbing or uh, unsettling as well. Yeah, you mix all that together. It's an ingredient for uh, reduction in health. It sounds yeah. like a recipe, I mean. Yeah. Well, you know, um, you let me draw on a metaphor for a moment that that addresses that kind of thing when uh, one of the books that Bob and I wrote together was called Quirks of the Quantum Mind and what we did was we looked at the uh, properties and uh, um, principles of quantum mechanics as a um, as as metaphors for experience um, and in particular, we, we talked about how uh, our consciousness uh, essentially functions as kind of a, um, if you will, a wave function, okay, that is uh, like an unbounded wave, all unbounded wave function. It's, it extends throughout all time and space. But if you envelop it, enclose it in some kind of a, uh, physical environment, uh, which uh, is frequently referred to as a potential well or a potential profile, then these uh, f- wave functions will set up standing waves uh, as adjusted to the dimensions of that environment. Okay? Mm-hmm. So l- let us uh, assume that our bodies, our physical bodies, might serve as a potential profile for our consciousness waves and our experiences in that body or those bodies uh, are something called eigenfunctions. That is, those standing waves represent the characteristics of our unique experience. Um, that I have found that a very comforting 
uh, metaphor since Bob passed away because uh, although his potential profile no longer exists in the physical world, uh, his wave function, his consciousness, the essence that was Bob John uh, still exists and uh, throughout all space and time. It's limitless. Um, it, you know, when you think about life in that, that sense, um, it gives one uh, a very reassuring view of the nature of death. It's nothing to be afraid of. It's a transition from a, an enclosed wave to a free wave state. Mm. Um, you don't disappear. You just change your state, your form. Um, I love that. Yeah. And uh, and I think, again, if you have, let's say, a wave function that ends up in a body that it is not resonant with it, uh, you could end up with a, a, a with sickness, with a, a you know a physical or biological experience that's not uh, very productive. It could be a form of ill health if something occurs that might alter your physical environment, your body. Uh, it could, it not only could, but will affect your consciousness as well. And if something affects your consciousness, it's going to also affect your your body because there's, again, we're talking about resonance. And when your consciousness and your physical environment, including your body, are harmonious, you're going to have good health, you're going to feel good, uh, and, you know, life is beautiful, <laughs> we hope, most of the time. <laughs> but it, there's another place where resonance, um, you know, becomes a meaningful description of experience. Um, I don't know if that's relevant or not, but it seems to me that it has some some relationship yeah, I I love that. I definitely think something along those lines quite a bit. That chapter uh, I wrote in the Filters book that you also edited, uh, which is essentially where I describe uh, basically taking you know noise, white noise, pick noise. It doesn't matter what noise source it is, and then continually resonating it inside a cavity you end up with this well-defined wave pattern that has very you know specific frequency signature that that is based upon the geometry of the cavity but the the reason i wrote that chapter and and am so very interested in it is for the essentially for its value as a metaphor precisely as you just described, although it's not in terms of a quantum resonation in a potential well, it's it's still the, the same principles of having boundary conditions applied to a wave function. And yeah, In our culture, we vastly underappreciate the value of metaphor. Um, uh, the translation of experience into description is the creation of metaphor. Our description is a metaphor for our experience. Metaphor is a very profound and 
uh, ubiquitous um, part of our experience as human beings. That's where why the uh, the value of myth and uh, and stories, uh, you know, have played such an important role in in the development of culture. Indeed, that's actually when people ask why you know since I'm a more than anything a, a musical artist people ask why did I stay in a university for eight full years studying physics and mathematics and really it's because the the biggest reason there's many reasons but the probably the biggest is that I find physics uh and the so-called laws the uh, the characteristics or the the regularities of physics i like regularities better than laws that they they're the to me the most they're principles rather than laws i wish people would use that word yeah i like that the they're they're to me the most uh in, like i guess the my the best word might be resonant uh resonant uh, metaphors for me. So when I study physics, everything just as if, uh, just like the description you just gave of the, you know, the way the wave function being applied, boundary conditions applied to a wave function creating res- resonance. Every physical principle to me yields just such vast usefulness as a metaphor for my more subjective internal experiences. So that's really why I like physics so much. It's just a, an amazing bunch of metaphors that all happen to, to be useful for producing technologies at the same time. So it's... Yeah, well, I could share another funny story with you. Please do. When Bob and I were working on this uh, quantum mechanical metaphor... He suggested that I sit in on a graduate-level course that he was teaching on quantum mechanics. <laughs> I had never studied quantum mechanics. Uh, I, you know, until I met him, I hadn't even heard of it. But um, he said, you know, don't get intimidated by equations or technicalities. Just get the general gist of, of the processes that we're talking about. So I was uh, sitting in on that class, and one day one of the grad students turned to me and said, uh, say, aren't you a psychologist? And I said, uh, yes, I am. And he said, well, why are you taking a course in quantum mechanics? I said, "Um, quantum mechanics? I thought this was about the psychology of subatomic particles. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, the wave and the particle are, again, a complementary pair. Uh, for years, it drove physicists crazy, arguing about whether light or electrons or whatnot were waves or particles. And well, it turns out that they're both, and it depends on how you look at them and how you attempt to measure them. In other words, if you are looking for a particle, you will <clears throat> notice particulate qualities, position, momentum, etc. If you are looking for a wave, you will note the amplitudes and frequencies. But it isn't either or, it's both and. And, um, you know, once we grasp that, that, that whole concept of complementarity is so profound. It eliminates a dualistic view of the world <clears throat> and replaces it with a complementary one. 
which of course you know goes all the way back to the ancient Chinese concept of uh, yin and yang, uh, where yin and yang are complementary properties of the Tao, which is the universe, which is everything. Um, but there are two ways of looking at it. It re- expresses itself in two different ways, depending on how you are, well, depending on what you're looking for. <laughs> that actually goes so, back to the name and the theme of this show being the art and science of sound healing is that I think that uh, the same issue comes up in the field of sound healing of treating you know, approaching things as art or approaching things as science and sort of separating them and then sometimes accidentally using one where the other should be and creating confusion. But I actually just wrote a paper last week about essentially treating art and science as sort of complementary poles on the on sort of a, a dimension of creative activity. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, just to, if I might include a plug here for our most recent book. Yeah, that's, this is actually a great time for all the plugs you want to lay on us. <laughs> well, um, you know, after we closed the Pear Laboratory in 2007, we established a nonprofit called, I think you mentioned it in the introduction, International Consciousness Research Laboratories or ICRL, and one of the things that ICRL does is it has a a, a publication imprint, and we've published now uh, 13 books uh, that address different aspects of consciousness, science, and spirituality. Um, Just before uh, he passed away, Bob and I had finished editing a book that we called Being and Biology, Uh, You're familiar with that because you have an excellent chapter in that book. (laughs) It's a collection of some 15 uh, essays by different uh, authors and experts on different aspects of the relationship between uh, consciousness and uh, the physical world, uh, our biology. And the, uh, the thesis that it proposes is that consciousness is essentially a universal organizing principle. Uh, it is it is the Yang principle that organizes the vast uh, array of possibilities or probabilities uh, inherent in the universe, and that 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 vast universe is the Yin, which is the source of energy and possibility, and the Yang that then takes those. With intention, okay? Once again, there's intention. You want, you are looking for something. You want to think about a topic. You want to create something. And then you experience, you let go of that intentionality and you resonate with that concept. And this is how reality is created across the board. Um, anyway, I would recommend a being in biology it's uh, it's available as are all of our books on uh, amazon uh under the icrl press and also uh you can read short descriptions of them on the icrl.org uh, website under the icrl press page um but i think all of these things that we've been talking about come down to some very 
common themes, resonance uh, being really central to all of it, uh, sound being a form of resonance, and uh, how any form of resonance affects the physical environment in which it takes place. And so um, sound uh, produced in a resonant fashion can certainly affect healing of a physical body. I have no question about that. But I do think, as you pointed out, that it's important to distinguish between the experience and the description. Um, mm. So, anyway, uh, so much for my plugs. <laughs> well, I'm returning to that plug, I, although I wrote a chapter in that book, until the book was released, I hadn't read any of the other chapters. And... I read all of them. It it took took a, a good week or so. They're not they're not it's not light reading by any means and it gives a lot to think about. But what I noticed that even though each chapter is very much a standalone and doesn't necessarily uh, refer to some of them make reference to other chapters, but primarily they're they're standalone and are coming from a very unique angle each one but after having read the entire book it sparked massive amounts of creativity it was really inspiring to me and a lot of things started clicking that were certainly inspired by the sort of overlap of all the different parts of the book so i i highly recommend the book even if my chapter weren't in there <laughs> Thank you very much. It's really nice to hear that. And uh, I know this was a project that Bob was deeply committed to. Um, and uh, it came out uh, just a couple of weeks after he passed away. But it seems somehow uh, somehow relevant to that, that transition mm. uh, that, that he experienced. And uh, uh, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, it really does give all these different perspectives. I mean, there's an addition to your chapter on sound. There's chapters on light, on water, on healing, on uh, oh, et cetera, et cetera. As I say, there's 15 of them. And um, I would uh, I recommend that your listeners check that out if uh, they have an interest in the topic. Yeah, and as you mentioned, you, ICRL Press has a whole bunch of other extraordinary books of great variety. There's one in particular where you summarize, I'm trying to see if I have it on my shelf, but you probably will you'll name it off the top of your head since you wrote it, uh, where you summarize the pair research. So if people are interested in really digging deeper into the the results and protocols and you know a basically a pretty extensive summary of the research you conducted at the Paralab. What's that book called? Well there's actually two of them. The oh, first yeah. one was called Margins of Reality, The Role of Consciousness in the Physical World. That was written uh, oh about eight years into the PEAR program and then when the PEAR program closed we wrote a supplementary a uh, book called Consciousness and the Source of Reality, The Pair Odyssey, 
which uh, brought up to date all of the findings since uh, the, the, the initial publication of Margins. Um, but it's uh, it's pretty much uh, you know covers the, the whole spectrum of our work. There is also an article that can be downloaded from our website called the Pair Proposition that uh, that summarizes uh, the, the the Pair work uh, pretty pretty thoroughly. I don't know if you still have any available, but you also had a DVD set that was lectures. Yes, yes. We have a, a three-part DVD set, two DVDs and a CD uh, that involve, uh, include uh, four lectures that Bob gave on the pair work to an undergraduate class, uh, a tour of the pair laboratory, interviews with various people who were associated with the program, and some other, uh, you know, additional material, some of it funny, some of it just, uh, you know, uh, informative. And there's a CD in which uh, Bob and I having a conversation about what we did and why we did it and how we did it, which um, is also, uh, some. I listened to it again not too long ago. It was actually a pretty good conversation. Uh, that can be, that can be ordered on the ICRL, uh, website as well. What's that called? It's called the pair proposition. It's just like the, um, like the, uh, the, the article. Yeah. I, I've watched that many times and shared it with many people. I very much enjoy it. Actually, I think I'll watch it again soon just to get to spend some more time with Bob in the virtual way. Yeah, well, you know, when you watch that, you can once again see the complementary dynamic between Bob and and I and me uh, in his lectures and my uh, tour of the laboratory, our different styles and tones. And and yet, between the the two, uh, you get a fairly good sense of uh, what Pear was about. Well, I guess uh, we're coming to a time where it's probably pretty good to close. I could talk to you for as long as you were ever willing to. And I definitely look forward to speaking with you and visiting you as much as possible. But um, is there anything you would like to leave everyone with before we close out? Uh, I can't think of anything other than to say I am delighted with your project I think that the whole concept of sound healing is something that needs a broader and deeper understanding because it's a very powerful process. And uh, I think uh, we, if we understood it better, we might be able to apply it more effectively. So keep up the good work with that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're with you on it. Thank you so much for joining us today and thank you most of all for the tremendous uh, dedication and effort and energy that you've poured into uh, exploring, researching, and sharing and uh, bringing people together around these most interesting areas of human experience. Your, uh, Your life has been a 
great gift to the whole humanity. And I would, uh, hope to ever do something so close to close to that wonderful, um, really, really appreciate you and thank you. I'm just grateful for your being here with us. Well, it was fun, Thomas. Uh, and maybe that's an important part of creativity too. Uh, <laughs> fun. It was, uh, it, and it was a great privilege to to have been able to work with Bob and to do what we what we did together. Um, you know, whether or not it has an effect on others was almost irrelevant. We did it because we were trying to understand, for our own sakes, you know what you know, the big questions were all about. But um, in any event, I'm delighted to know that, uh, and so would Bob be, that, you know, our work has had that kind of influence on you and on other people. And uh, we hope you can pass that on in your own way to others and other dimensions. So uh, thank thank you for having me. It was uh, fun talking with you. And uh, good luck with your project. Thank you, and I'll see you very soon. Uh, Okay. Thanks to Brenda Dunn for being here with us today on The Art and Science of Sound Healing. I'm your host, Thomas Orr Anderson, and until next time, be blessed. (laughs) 